0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2007.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Television audiences first knew today's guest from shows like Northern Exposure, the character Holling, which he created, Dr. Green's Father on E.R., Barry Mordock on Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Broadway audiences first met John Cullum as Sir Dinadan in Camelot in 1960. Later, he created the character of Dr. Mark Bruckner in on A Clear Day You Can See Forever, the character of Charlie Anderson in Shenandoah, Oscar Jaffe in On the 20th Century, and more recently, Caldwell B. Cladwell in Urinetown, some famous characters created by John Cullum. Hi, John, and welcome to Downstate Center.
2: Thank you very much for having me, John. You too, Howard.
1: Currently... The King of Britain, Cymbeline, Cymbeline at the Lincoln right. Center Theater here in New York. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Cymbeline, about the Shakespeare play. It's one of the lesser-known Shakespeare plays. Well,
2: it, it really is. Um, in fact, when my manager called me and asked me if I wanted to do it, uh, I, I, I thought, wait a minute, I it's, I can't even remember this play. So I read it. And I don't even know whether I was re-reading it or not. But I called him back up and I said, "Why in the world does Mark Lemos want to do this play? I mean, it's so complicated and so uh, uh, well ob- obscure in many ways, and the language is 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 uh, even more difficult than most of Shakespeare's stuff." I said, "What in the world? Why would he want to do it?" And he called. Um, uh, uh, the casting agent and uh, the casting agent told him that mark loved this play and that he'd already done it before up at hartford and that he couldn't wait to do another production and he thought it was one of the best plays of shakespeare i said listen if if mark has a vision for this play then i'm willing to do it and that's why i did it
0: well you didn't hear it immediately on taking the role, but that first day of rehearsal, when everybody's sitting around the table, did Mark say why he wanted to do this play, and what he was looking for for, from all of you?
2: Well, Mark is a running dialogue all the time on on whatever project he's doing, but I do remember vividly him describing when he had seen Assembling, and for him, it was a transforming experience one of the things in the play um, when as when as you remember when Imogen discovers the body that she thinks is her her husband uh, which is, is is pretty far-fetched and and a little bit difficult in terms of uh, of uh, you know suspending disbelief sort of thing uh, Marx said that was a a, a moment that literally took me into a different level, a different area of consciousness, almost, uh, of theater. And I thought, wow, this is what this is what uh, he meant when he said he had a, a, a he thought it was a great play. It moved him so much that he 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 it, it changed his attitude about theater.
0: So now that you're inside it, how do you feel about the play?
2: Well, I never watched that scene, so I can't <laughs> No, but I, I listen to it a lot, and uh, um, it's a tricky play. It's very difficult, uh, and it, um, it's a wonderful cast. I, I've never been in a cast that was... Uh, so diverse in their backgrounds and their, the the different types of things
0: that they've done. Well, we should say your co-stars include Martha Plimpton, Felicia Rashad, Jonathan Cake, Michael Cerveris. Each and- one of them uh, and, and um,
2: John Pankow uh, and, uh, have done. They're all stars, uh, for my money, and and uh, and they've all done such different things. Uh, but they, it, the company has such a wonderful feeling to me. Now, of course, I don't know what the people who watch it think about it, but I, I do know what I feel about the company. And they, they, we, we all come together in a kind of a maybe, – maybe it's the adversity that breeds this kind of a, 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 you know, battlefield uh, uh, camaraderie or something, but it's a wonderful company to be with and, and to work with, and there's a wonderful spirit to the company. Um, now, have we gotten off the subject here, or can I just keep on <laughs> well, rambling? Keep on uh, rambling. <laughs> one of the things about it that is so extraordinary uh, is that Shakespeare, uh, to me, what I mean, I'm not an expert on Shakespeare, but I've done quite a few of, of, of his plays. This play is, is a hodgepodge of... S- so many of his other plays. I mean, there's um, the Othello. Just take or take the Scottish play. I don't know whether you people probably don't like to hear you say Macbeth.
0: We're not in the theater. It's okay. okay well,
2: <laughs> Lady Macbeth uh, is, is exemplified by uh, my queen, who is so evil in this place She doesn't even have a name. I guess she does have a name, but I don't. I've never. <laughs> I've never used it. And uh, she's so w- wonderfully played by uh, Felicia, but she's really right out of uh,
0: Macbeth. Well, some have suggested you're Lear.
2: Of course, Lear. My, I mean, and and the relationship to, with me and my daughter is is Lear, yeah. And um, Posthumus and and, uh, and 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 Imogen as Othello, right?
0: But I let mean, me let me ask you about Lear because it seems that through your career. You've, you've been around Lear a lot <laughs> and, and thought about playing Lear, and I read somewhere that you actually passed up playing Lear to do Town. That's right, I had so, to So does, does playing Cymbeline once again whet your appetite to actually take on the full Lear?
2: No, I guess what I, what's happened, and I've also played recently with my son. I went down to, to the Clarence Brown in Knoxville, Tennessee, my hometown, and did uh, a production of The Dresser. So I got to play Lear again. Sort of. So I kind of, I'm getting it piecemeal here and little bits and pieces of it. I've almost given up hopes of doing Lear. I, I should have done it when I, 10 years ago. But as you say, I've, I've, I've had it committed to memory and ready to go twice. I've directed it. I, I stage managed Lear in the, in very, very early in my career. Uh, and uh, and i I played Lear for Bernie Gerstein, who is the executive producer over here when he was connected with Shakespeare in the park i played the I played the King of france in in uh, in a production. I just happened to be sitting in the audience and he uh, by that time I had left and gone to Broadway and become a musical comedy actor and and he he just said, "Hey, you don't want? Would you like to play the King of France?" I said, "Hey, you guys have been in rehearsal for a couple of weeks, haven't you?" And he said, "Yeah, but we're having a kind of a, a, a switch over, and, and and Joe Papp is going to direct it." Uh, and I said, "Well, sure." So I just walked into the role, didn't have to audition or anything.
1: Well, to, to, to play Cymbeline at Lincoln Center Theater, what kind of challenges did you find as an actor? Between maybe Shakespeare's language, working on a thrust stage, uh, wh- wh- what sort of challenges?
2: Well, my biggest challenge was Mark. Mark Lamos was really a <laughs> difficult challenge, as far as I was concerned. Mark is—he's um, very exciting to be around, and he's very uh, and, he, and he has uh, wonderful ideas, and he knows what he wants. And but sometimes it's. Uh, it, it, I don't think the, the word roughshod is quite the, the right word, but uh, he does have a tendency sometimes. What I, I can, see here, Howard is is beginning to frown now, but he's worked up there with 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 Mark, so he's probably thinking. I'm, I'm actually
0: <laughs> laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but but
2: and, and it comes back to me having worked with Mark earlier. Some of the the techniques he Mark, for instance, at one time said something which is could be. Appalling to most actors to hear. He said, "I'm not interested in the characters. I am interested in action. And that's the way he directed this play. The cuts are superb. Uh, and he cut out a lot of stuff that I liked, but they're wonderful cuts. They make the play work for a modern audience and And the idea of of going for the action, keeping it moving, Driving through to the center of the story, of the stories. Uh, I'll have to tell you another little thing. I ju- I just went to see at Lincoln Center in the library um, a production that is, uh, or a seminar or whatever it was called. They, they do a, a certain program over there. Charlotte Moore directed a reading. Of the final act of Shakespeare as written by Shaw,
0: that Shaw disapproved of how Shakespeare ended the play, uh, so he decided to write his own version.
2: That's right, and um, it in that in that discussion, there's certain things that I found out that that they're by the expert of Shakespeare. They were had a Shakespearean expert and they had a Chauvin expert, and he said that there's forty over 40 different actions in this play plot lines in in Cymbeline and that that I believe although I'm sure we cut out uh, must have been we still have over 30 I can tell you that it's just the the resolution uh, in that in and 55 act 5 scene 5 is very funny because so many things were resolved so quickly but it's not half as funny as it would have been if Mark had kept it in but some of those laughs would have been people would have been laughing at us
1: uh, speaking of Mark Lemos the the, uh, director you as an actor have to understand the character you're playing and then interpret the character mm -hmm. so when the director says to you I'm not interested in character I'm interested in action how does that affect you then as an actor and your interpretation of the character
2: that, well, is that a challenge? <laughs> Mark, Mark's <laughs> attitude is that's your work. Uh-huh. I, I, just get on with it. You do what you do and I'll do what I do. And he pushes you around. He gives you line readings which most actors wouldn't take off, off anybody. Um, and um, if if he were here he would deny all this but it's not, he, he can't deny him because I know <laughs> he does it all the time. He gets on with it and he tries to he covers as much ground as he can and he does take care of his actors when, when, when they're in trouble or need something from him he can go into anything he wants to in the character or whatever but in this particular play he wanted to get on with it because it's it, there are so many pitfalls and so I mean we could have we had plenty of, of rehearsal compared to what most people get uh, I mean we rehearsed for five weeks and then we had previews for five weeks uh, and rehearsed every day that we could, uh, that, you know, that you can, and, and you can rehearse an awful lot in one of those Lort contracts that we had. So we were rehearsing for over ten weeks, mm-hmm. and um, and and still, uh, uh, we we Mark was not; he was never satisfied, and he constantly had things that he wanted to be improved. So we 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 were constantly working on these things. So uh, as far as I, I'm, I'm not being facetious when I say he he expects his actors to do their work. He hires. That's one of the best things um, that a director does, or the most important thing. The, starts with act with casting the company, and you find that that good directors have good casts. That's the and that, that's what saves their ass. if, if Excuse my expression.
1: And it sounds like he trusted his actors to, to let you interpret their. Character.
2: He does more than trust them. He he demands that they do their job. Mm. You know, he wants them to do what they can do, and he hired them for that. And he said that to me a couple of times. You know, that's what I got you for. Mm. Uh, um, and you, you know, he he and he knows how to push the right buttons. So if you if I need encouragement, if he sees me moping, he'll push the right button. <laughs> I come out thinking I'm a great actor.
0: We often hear from actors that a show grows, deepens, changes once it's open. And given what you've been saying, after the directors sort of left, uh-huh. um, has there been con- continuing discovery during Cymbeline? Now we're we're a few weeks since uh, since you opened. There always
2: is for me. I mean, I never. I've always. It doesn't make any if, if I'm doing for a week or. Two weeks or a year or two years, I'm I'm always looking for something that will that will goose me up or or make it better. And uh, but that doesn't mean that I I change the interpretation at all. I'm, I'm I uh, anything I'm I'm I, I'm almost always trying to extend the the direction that I've been going in and pushed into w- from with the director. So I, I seldom ever get in trouble with a director for having changed stuff. Uh, for instance, I don't know, when you guys saw the show? Mm-hmm. Yes. When did you see it?
1: Oh. Quite, quite a while ago. Open night for me.
2: Well, <laughs> Mark has seen this. I don't even know whether he hasn't said anything about it. But uh, I I've, I've wanted and felt in the final scene uh, I had a, a a day where that la- where that final scene just seemed so down, and then I I realized that I was coming into the scene uh, as if uh, as if I were were depressed, and the, the truth is. Simelin comes in in the best mood that you've ever seen him, and he's just won the battle, been saved by these three guys that have came out of nowhere, and this weird guy in, in in rags have saved the day, and he's been captured, and he's been recaptured, and he's been saved, and, and he's just... So it, it occurred to me that he's, he's elated, and it just fits right into the lines. So I started playing it that way, and, and it may have gotten a little bit farther than what you guys hear because at the final moment in one of those those moments of elation i literally have been edging towards doing a little jig (laughs) which uh uh, if it gets into a river dance kind of session i don't know what (laughs) what mark's going to think about that
0: well it it bears asking that um you are so well known to so many people as a musical comedy star, and mm-hmm. for some, it was even perhaps surprising to see John Collum's name on the list of cast for a major Shakespeare production. But you, er, very early in your career, were doing a lot of classical work. Can you can you tell us about those early days?
2: Well, um, the the truth is that when I came to New York, I had. Um, I still have the Southern accent when, when I'm not on stage, uh, but I had a distinct Southern, East Tennessee trawl, and uh, it disappeared when I read Shakespeare. I had never done Shakespeare. I had done in the University of Tennessee. We did all of the plays of the uh, in, that in the in the fifties. From there, when I was there from '48 to '53. We did all the plays that were done on Broadway as soon as they were were released. And so I got to do all these contemporary plays. And play played Lees in a lot of them, Golden Boy. And uh, I played Dr. Sloper when I was t- 22 from The Heiress. And I played, I was in, um, uh, my first show was uh, Front Page. I played uh, uh, Wilson of the American press or something, and uh, uh, so we did all of these things, contemporaries, but we didn't do any Shakespeare at all, because Dr. Soper, who ran the department, the drama department, I think was a little bit intimidated by Dr. Thaler, who was an expert on Shakespeare, or maybe he just didn't like Shakespeare, I don't know, but I had never done any Shakespeare, had only seen maybe one production of Shakespeare except for Olivier's Hamlet and Richard III, and so when I got to New York, uh I ended up in in St. Joan carrying a spear. Uh after I was here for about f five weeks, I ended up in that thing. And they were they were seeing all these people that they had it was a different kind of name. It was directed by Albie Marr, who later directed uh Man of La Mancha. But but uh, they had like sixteen supernumeraries and sixteen extras, and I was one of those extras, and everybody was auditioning for this company called the Shakespeareites, and so I said, well, well I'm going to I'm going to audition for this place. So I went down to the Strand Bookstore, which the 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 Saint Joan was playing it at, at the Twelfth Street Theater on Twelfth Street and Second Avenue, which later was a it's a, was a lovely theater. And um, I walked over to the Strand Bookstore, bought a dollar version of uh, a dollar um, uh, uh, Complete Works of Shakespeare, and looked through Hamlet, and naturally picked out the only prose section that he has uh, the the, in the in the um, uh, graveyard scene, the last poor Yorick. You know. So, and I learned this speech and. They used to call me Tennessee down there. I worked in the the way I got into the Saint Joan was I, I worked in the office. I just hung around the office. I kept saying, You need some help here, I'll just do it and I kept hanging around, hanging around and finally they put me into the show because they they felt self conscious that this guy was hanging around so much and but they called me Tennessee. And uh they kept kidding me about reading and reading and reading, and um, I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And I'd go down and work on the stage, and then, then finally the guy, one of the guys said, well, listen, if you're going to go, you better go today because this is the last day. And uh, I said, okay, I'm going, and I took off. And then I came back very sheepishly, and I said, uh, well, I, I don't know where this place is. Where, where, where's the audition being held? And the guy said, wait a minute. I, and he went over, and he picked up the telephone. He called this guy named Phil Lawrence, and he said, "Phil, I've got this young guy from, from um, uh, uh, who's done quite a bit of Shakespeare in the past. From and what have you worked in?" He whispered to me, and I said, "I haven't done anything." He said, "He he did a lot of stuff up in Connecticut." He said, <laughs> he said <laughs> "With the Tennessee <tendency laughs> accent." <action>. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he'd never seen me, didn't know me, and ne- nobody knew me. They called me Tennessee, but he, Phil said, "Well, we can't t- tell him to come on up here. This is the last day. If he doesn't mind him sitting around waiting." We'll, we'll we'll just uh, we'll do it we'll get him in so I went up to the St. Ignatius Church on 87th Street and I sat down and this beautiful young girl blonde woman who later played the Ophelia, Helen Marie Taylor was sitting there and she started talking to me and she said uh, what are you reading for I said well I'm reading for the Hamlet she said listen the Hamlet's already cast she says why don't you you'd be really wonderful for the Laertes so I started looking over the Laertes and I forgot all about that. Last poor York. <laughs> <laughs> so I was the last person that, to, and they took me through the this back entrance by the boilers and back up through there, and I came into this this place where they were reading, and they were all sitting, the dead tired and so disinterested they couldn't say. And they so they they said, Mister Cullum. Um, uh, we understand that you've been looking, you've been, you've looked over the speech, the uh, alas, poor York. And I tried to say it. Well, no, I've been looking. And they said, would you mind doing that, please? And I said, well, okay. So I, <laughs> I took the book now and I said, this is a skull. I said, alas, poor York. I, uh, do you mind if I start again? Uh, alas, poor York. I, I, I really would like to start again if you don't mind so I, I, <laughs> I got concentrated with my book into my skull. I said alas poor Yorick I knew him Horatio I, I said listen you know I've forgotten this whole thing Speech. I said, "Do you mind if I read the laertes?" Because I've been I've been looking at the laertes, and they said, "Oh, well, all right, please go ahead and read it." <laughs> so I said, "Okay," and I start, I read this laertes speech, and, blah, 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 and I could I could read it very easily because I was brought up on the King James version of the Bible, which was translated in what 1608 or something like that, same time. So I could I could read Shakespeare like even like I understood it. <laughs> And I, and I kept saying, I'll be glad to read anything else. And, and the stage manager was dragging me out. And finally the director said, wait a minute, wait a minute, bring him back here. I want him to read the... Uh, um something. I want him to read for the, uh, the uh, Rosencrantz. So they had this little... Sp- this combination of Rosencrantz and Gendelstern put together. And I just went... Brrr, right through it. Very easy for me. And I... I and. And I walked out, and uh, I thought, "Well, I'll never hear from these guys again." So, because you know, they were—they were—they looked like they couldn't wait to get rid of me. So the next day, I got a telephone call down in the office at the at the Phoenix Theater, and uh, I went in there, and the stage and the stage manager from Shakespeare. I said, to "Mr. Cullum, um, we we are interested in you playing the uh, uh, Rosencrantz, doubling as Marcellus." And I said, Well those are those are very small parts, aren't they? And he he was kinda of taken aback and I said and he said, Well, they're very good parts. And uh, I said, Well, I- I'm gonna have to think about it. Because I'd been playing nothing but leads in Colli, and I thought it was that they should know that I was a leading actor. <laughs> well, I hung up. I walked back in and I said – and I started thinking and I didn't – and I said, you know something? These guys from the Shakespeareites called and they wanted me to to do the, the Rosencrantz and, and double with Marcellus. And I said, but I didn't know. And the guy came over and took me by the ear. He took me – he said, you call those people back right now and you tell them you'll do it. So that's how I got started in Shakespeare. (laughs) And you
0: did a lot of Shakespeare. And before we move on, because we certainly want to talk about your musical roles, we do have to ask about the fact that you did get to play Laertes in a fabled production, namely the Richard Burton Hamlet Mm -hmm. directed by John Gielgud. Correct. Can you just tell us a little about that production, which some people here in New York have had a chance to see because a film of it got incorporated by the Wooster Group. I've been tell hearing us about it. the original.
2: I've been hearing a lot about that. Well, the original was, um, well, everybody wanted to be in that show. And, um, uh, to be quite frank with you, I I knew I was going to read for it because Richard had asked me to read for it, but it went in Camelot. And he, he said, I'm going to do it, and I want you to be in that. So, uh, i didn't worry about it i was I was the understudy to the two leads in uh uh the Enwe's, the rehearsal for for merrick and I was doing uh an, in rehearsal for an off broadway play at the same time called Thistle in my bed and uh directed by howard de Silva and so I was really overworked and tired and uh and so i didn't think anything about it when they said you have the audition at tomorrow at, at four i thought okay i 'll look look it over because i 'd been in uh, productions of Hamlet and uh, and I knew the play very well and I knew the Laertes very well and uh, except for this one speech which is begins with Thy, my necessaries are embarked, and it 's the most convoluted." weird kind of um, structure of speaking that's in that, in, in the whole of of, the, of of Hamlet so I said it's always cut I knew it was so I I, I went in and Sir John t- said um, oh Mr. Cullum um, Richard says you're a good actor and I I said, well, thank you. And he says, what, what would you like to read today? And I said, well, Sir John, whatever you want me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, well, I love that speech. My necessities are embarked. <laughs> <laughs> so so, I, so I, I read that speech, and it was so awful. It was so awful, I couldn't make head nor tails of it. And And at the end of it, Sir John, who is not one to... I miss an opportunity of putting in the knife when he says, "Well, Richard thinks you're a good actor," and uh, I left, and uh, I, I thought I'd blown it, and I had because Sir John thought I was the worst actor in the world, and uh, Richard made him read me again, and this time I was prepared for him, and uh, and that's uh, that's how I got him. But that, but go ahead.
0: I read in those that in those days, because of Burton, you started to sound like Burton. Having just heard oh, you do an uncanny Gilgood, I yeah. have to
2: ask. Well, of course, I can do Richard too. Um, there, there was a Brutus once who would have brooked the eternal devil to keep his status. Easily. But everybody can do Gilgood, and everybody can do uh, Brad uh, do uh, Richard. Uh, I mean, who's been around them, but. Uh, that, uh, how many people can do the phrasing of John Gielgud? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, John would talk to you, and you'd think he'd be giving you a stage direction, and, and suddenly you'd realize he would be quoting lines from, from Shakespeare, and then suddenly he, you'd, you'd think, This is so real, I can't believe it, and you'd realize that he'd stopped using the lines and it could, reverted to giving you a stage direction.
1: Well, let's let's back up four years. That was nineteen sixty four. Hamlet. Four right. years earlier, you made your Broadway debut in Camelot. That's true. You were in the original cast. How did how did that role come about? And then you were understudying both uh, Richard Burton and
2: uh, Roddy McDowell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that season at, at uh, in, in the park was where I got most of my exposure to Shakespeare, because. I came back from the Dallas Repertory Company. I was a member of the Dallas Repertory Company, and uh, and I came back and, and uh, I auditioned for Joe Papp. And they they cast me in a, a minor role in the three shows. And then I understudied the, the Petruchio and the Lucio, the two leading roles in Taming the Shrew, and I understood the two leading roles in... Um, Measure for Measure, Angelo and the Duke, two enormous roles, and then I understudied the two leads in in Henry V. I understood the, the chorus and Henry V. So I and then I had three roles that I played. So I I learned nine different roles that season, and the guy who was playing the uh, the uh, the, uh, the chorus. Uh, twisted his knee playing in the baseball league <laughs> so I came to the theater that night and and Pap said uh, John he came back at half hour and said John you're going to have to go on tonight and uh, I said fine sure and, he's, and so he went out and he made the speech about the fact that Mr. Cullum has graciously um, agreed to uh, go for the role of of the chorus for us tonight. And, of course, he'll be carrying the book. And so on. But, you see, I knew that first speech. <laughs> oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage. Well, I just tore the stage up, saw that first. And then I, the rest of the play, I was creeping around with a flashlight, reading and, and getting half the words wrong. But Bud Whitney, who was Alan J. Learner's uh, assistant, happened to be in the auditorium. And so when I went to audition for Camelot, which I hated musical auditions with a passion, they scared me to death. And I usually was inebriated when I went to, to them. Yes.
1: Maybe, maybe that's the best way sometimes. Well,
2: it was in those days because otherwise I, I was I, – I really – it was a terrible – I was inebriated when I auditioned for them. But… Uh, uh, and I remember going, well, I can tell you, that's, but if you're running out of time. These stories take up too much time. But I I'd spent the afternoon with Arthur Mallett, who was in love with Kathleen Widows. He was a wonderful character actor. And he called me, and, 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 and he said, he, he was moaning and groaning. And I said, where are you, Arthur? And he says, I'm down at the bar. That was right down from my street. So I said, just stay there. So I went down there, and I started talking to him. And and we stayed down there and it was, it was 12 o'clock when I met him and then about 4 o'clock I said well listen I said Arthur I've, I've got an audition today and uh, I, for, for Camelot and I, I really have to go and he says what time's your audition I said it's two and he says well you're only two hours late if you hurry mm-hmm. so I went on up to the to the theater and I was everybody was gone except one. I was the last person there and they handed me this piece of paper that had a lot of stuff on it, and I, I scrawled across it, graduate of the University of Tennessee. I don't know why I wrote that then, but and I, I handed it to them. And I was very snarky and snotty in those days. And I w- walked out and sang this song. I didn't even know that the song I was singing was written by the two guys that I was auditioning for, Alan, Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe had written There But For You Go I and 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 I didn't know that Moss Hart was sitting in the audience <laughs> I had, that's how um, I, I simply was blase, I was, I don't, I just didn't know, so I, I sang I, I sang that song for them and um, and I thought that's the end of that they called me and asked me if I'd come back and and do a whole note scale, which is a very difficult thing, and particularly if, if in my case I had an out of tune piano. So I practiced for a week on a, doing a whole note scale, and thought, oh man, this is ridiculous. I can't, I can't even sing it. I cannot no, I, Anyway, I went back, and they called me out on the stage with the three other guys, and I thought, well, they're going to get rid of us right away. And they said, Mister Cullum. Um, we, uh, can you do something from Shakespeare for us I said I beg your pardon and he said can you do uh, a, a speech from Shakespeare for us hmm. I said I can do practically anything from Shakespeare <laughs> which is so ridiculous I, could, I mean it was, <laughs> there I would only been exposed to Shakespeare for two or three years but I was so full of confidence and so enamored of the work I was absolutely I would have been, if it hadn't been for that day, I would have probably stayed doing Shakespeare for as long as, mm-hmm. as I would have... My whole career would have been different. But in any case, uh, Mozart or Alan, I never found out who, said, well, well uh, I, they said, would you do something for us? I said, I'll do the chorus uh, from Henry V. And somebody said... Oh, no, Mr. Cullen, we've heard you sing. We'd like for you to, to read. And I thought, oh, oh, my goodness. I said, well, I'll do the opening lines of, 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 of Henry V. Oh, for a muse of fire. And I just tore up the stage again. <laughs> and they came up, and they offered me the... Um, Moss and Allen came up, and they said, would you be interested in, in uh, the role of Denadan and standing by for Richard Burton and Ronnie McDowell? And I said, well, uh... How long do I have to think about this? And he said, "Well, we're starting rehearsal." I said, "I listen. I said I've thought about it. Of course, I'm (laughs) doing." So that's how I got into. That's how I ended up in musical comedies.
1: And then eventually, you did succeed. Roddy McDowell and moved up to to Mordred. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now moving onward to 1965, then the year after Hamlet. On a clear day, you can see forever. Your your big leading role, leading man in that show. Mm -hmm. How, How did you get into that? Again, it was another Alan J. Lerner project. Yeah, well, I
2: had... I, I, Bud had called me when mm. I left uh, and, uh, about two months after, and I did, I did a, a wonderful musical that closed in Philadelphia with Bob Preston that never made it called We Take the Town. And I had a wonderful role in it, and uh, but it never got to New York. Bud called me and said, Alan has written a new musical, and he's penciled you in for the second lead which is uh, the romantic lead of this woman who is having an affair in her past life. I said, that sounds interesting. And so uh, time went on by, and then I literally read in the trade magazines that the Learner office was looking for a John Cullum type <laughs> to audition for the play. And I called Bud up and I said, what in the world are you, what's going on here? I said, "What do you What do you want with a John Cullum type? If you got me?" He said, "Well, Alan's not sure that you have the that, that you have the humor for the role." And I said, "Well, no, no. I said, well, but anyway, I started auditioning for the role, and they were having a great deal of trouble casting the uh, the the lead." So I auditioned for for this the, the role and uh, several times, and then they sent me to a um, a vocal coach, a, uh, a linguist, and, uh, and they taught me a Viennese accent because they had been looking at Maximilian Schell, and they were going to sign Maximilian Schell, and then they happened to think, well, we better go check, and they flew the, over to Europe and found out that he. Was stone cold, tone deaf, couldn't sing a lick. Mm. So they and start-
0: maybe not the best sense of humor either.
2: Well, <laughs> believe me, I can. What can you say? I've I've had this terrible reputation of not being. And I mean, um, uh, Hal Prince said that about me one time. He, but he, you know, that I he didn't think I had the right sense of humor. And of course, well, he's changed his mind. But um, uh, it's funny. I don't know. I guess they thought I was. I don't know that maybe my southern whatever it was anyway i said i went i kept auditioning for the for both roles and finally i was getting ready to do my own hamlet in milwaukee and they called and said would you please come up and audition i said no i am not going to audition again and he said and bud said you've got to come up john because bobby lewis has got some new backers and they and they, have no, they haven't seen you at all and I said, "Listen, I'm I'm on my way uptown. I have to meet with Mr. Uh, with, uh, Mr. Albee about something else, and then I'm going to be going out of here to to, to 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 do my own Hamlet in Milwaukee. Uh, but I will stop by. But I'm not going to read. So I went up there, and I walked around on the stage in a circle, like I said. See, I didn't say a word. And Bobby Lewis said, well, John, aren't you even going to say hello?'" I said, "Well, I don't want to ruin the wonderful impression that I've made the twelve times that I've auditioned for you already." <laughs> and uh, so, and I wouldn't sing, and I wouldn't read.
0: But as the story goes, you didn't do the, you didn't do the show. Louis Jordan was cast. No, what happened
2: was uh, that, that, that I, I told him. I said, I, I told uh, the statement. I said after that episode. I said, not only am I not going to read for you, but if you guys don't call me by 9 o'clock tonight, I'm taking the movie Hawaii. And they didn't call, so I signed for the movie Hawaii with the the Mears brothers. And I played one of the mercenary missionaries. And I was in Hawaii when they opened with Louis Jordan. And uh, I had flown, they had flown me back to to uh they were having a lot of trouble with the movie and they didn't know how they're going to end it they didn't know whether they're going to use uh Gene Hackman or Lou Antonio or me to to have the final scene with Max von Sydow but they allowed me to go back to uh, to California to wait um, and I was on per diem still working and uh, uh, and drawing a salary more money than I'd ever made and and my wife was 8 months pregnant and she we We came in the door with packages full of stuff to set up this little apartment. The telephone rang, and it was Bud Whitney, and he called and said, "John, you've got to come to Boston because we we want you to to do the to 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 do the role." And uh, I said, "No, I'm not coming. You guys have jerked me around enough." I said, "I'm not going to do it." And he said, "You've got to." I said, "Well." Does you is this is this a serious thing? Because I know that Alan is is capricious, and uh, I know he said this is absolutely. I said, well, I said, what's wrong with Clifford David? He says not Clifford. That's not. It's the leading role with the, with Louis Jordan, which I had already read many times. And I said, oh well, okay. So I went. I flew to uh, to, uh, to, to 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 Boston, and. Learned the role in five days in a hotel room without any rehearsal uh, with anybody except Blue, uh, without it was just Bobby Lewis and me in a hotel room, and me staying up at night in the bathroom, learning lyrics while my wife pregnant wife was in the uh, in the other room, and then meeting with Barbara Harris uh, and the, and uh, on on a Sunday. And then rehearsing with the company on Monday, and I had I was putting on my makeup. My manager, my my agent came in, he gave me a kiss on the ear and said, "John, they're kicking me out of the theater, but don't worry, it'll all work out." I said, "What are, you, what are they doing?" I said, well, "They they they I won't sign. I won't let you sign a contract, so they're kicking me out of the theater." So they kicked my agent out of the theater. This was at half hour i 'm mm-hmm. putting on my makeup and i 'm trying to learn these lines and they 'd already cut one number because it just, i couldn't couldn 't learn it and uh, Then we got to the to the it was time for the curtain to go up and Bob Downing, the stage manager, says, "I am not bringing this curtain up because John Colum does not have a contract mm-hmm. and um and, and, and uh, so Alan said, "Well, it's really up. To, it's really up to John." So everybody turned and looked at me. And I said, "Well, I, I don't. I don't know what to do." And so my wife said, "Wait a minute." She happened to be there. She said, "So she went and called the executive director of equity and told him what the situation was, and said that it would all be settled, but it, it, it couldn't be settled tonight." but could John go out and just give him a dispensation to do this on the, on the uh there's oh that's how my opening night happened in in, 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 it's in a Boston suspicious opening and thing. it was it was supposed to be that I was only going to take over for 2 weeks at least this this is what I found out later that Louis thought I was only going on for 2 weeks to learn the new lines that had been uh, put into the play and then he was going to come back in but I had been assured that I was I was taking over, and they never, ever uh, fired Louis. They didn't. Louis Jordan made the same amount of money as Barbara and I did together, or or more, for the for, entire run of the play, and for basically staying home. Didn't for not doing anything. So it was a it was a wild, extraordinary ride. <laughs> Amazing. And there's a lot of stories involved from that, but I'm, I can't. We don't have time for all that.
0: And it's a ride that then really cemented you as a musical comedy lead and star. You then uh, were one of the many Don Quixotes and Man of La Mancha on Broadway. You were a replacement in 1776, and of course got to do the film. You're established, you're doing film work, all of this. What possessed you to go to a four hundred seat theater in the middle of Connecticut to do an unknown musical by l- relatively little known writers named Shenandoah? well, um I got this call
2: when i was I was doing I was doing the king and i in in Salt Lake City, as I recall at the university there. For which I got very good reviews, except that one of the reviewers, that lead reviews, says Mister. Collins very, very good as the King of Siam, but he, his accent was reminded me strangely of Bella Lugosi. <laughs> 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 are you are <all> a school teacher, <laughs> but anyway, they had this script. I read the script and I thought this is a, this is a script that I can do, but. Uh, there are plenty of other people that, you know, that they. I would think they would think of sooner. Um, in fact, when I went up to talk to Phil Rose in his office, they they told me that Jack Palance was supposed to do the role, hmm. but that he didn't want to do it in
0: East Haddam. In,
2: in East Haddam. But I, I, I'm, they must have told me that later, because I remember I I said, "Why didn't you call? Why, why didn't Why didn't you call Bob Preston?" They said, "Well, we have." And I, I said, uh, well, "Richard Kiley would be wonderful in this role." And they said, "Yeah, we thought so too." But <laughs> they couldn't get any of these. Different people to the, the the and I mentioned three or four other people. See, because I was only forty four, and this character had was should have been older than that because he had he had seven kids and and uh, and uh, he was a grandfather. It was possible, but it didn't. It, it Charlie Anderson. You you would have thought of him. It was played by James Stewart when he was considerably older than. Well,
1: during this, this this period when you were talking about doing it in East Haddam at, at good speed was there ever any discussion about the show eventually transferring to Broadway was it strictly to be a Connecticut production
2: at that point well I uh, I had I had three different contracts they I was doing two shows over in in uh, in in East Hampton I'm and I can't, had to come across for the rehearsal. I uh, came across; you know, they wouldn't let me fly. So you had to take a boat across. I had to down. take across, <laughs> a boat across Long Island <laughs> Sound, and I got over on a Sunday night, okay. and uh, spent one night with the, the, the composers and singing the songs, and and then we went into the rehearsal the next day, Monday, uh, and I. It was the play was still in the in in a movie f- form, uh, almost. I mean, it was it was it had been translated into a play, but it still had had umpteen scenes. And I just went, I said, "We don't need to jump here. Why don't we just go type this scene?" Boom, and and we just went through and and put scenes together as I was rehearsing the scene. This was my one day of rehearsal. And I got we got all the way through the first act, and then ran the first act, and then I had to go back to East Haddam, and oh. they rehearsed until I got back there. So I only had one week of rehearsal to put a new show together. So I was, and I'm not a, I'm not really a, a fast study. I'm, I do a lot of, of closet work. Uh, people think I'm a or A lot of people thought I was, but I, I, I'm not that fast. I just work in the closet. A lot more than people know. But uh, I, I've done, I had to do that. And um, they came to me after the, after we'd been rehearsing the first, second week, halfway through it, and they said, John, we've got some great news. We want you to do the show here in East. In, 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 um, Want to t- you to go to to Boston? They had made three contracts: one for me if I if I played it as I as I played it in East Haddam, and another if I went with it to Broadway, and another one if it didn't go if it didn't take me to Broadway, so that I got some recompense for that. So they had three different contracts. I remember that. But then they came to me and said, "Oh, we're going to use you." I said. Uh, as it and they they wanted me to be very surprised. I wasn't at all surprised because once I got into that role, and saw what could would happen, I, I, they would it would have been very tough to take that role away from me. It's
1: a good thing they hired you and then transferred to Broadway because you get got to win your first Tony Award for that. That's right, as that's Man. right.
2: So, yeah, yeah. That was a, it was wonderful. That, that, that was a wonderful experience.
1: Then your your second Tony Award uh, came a few years later for On the Twentieth Century. Yep. How,
2: how did that show come about for you? I was in East Hadham directing a show, uh-huh. and, uh, and and they kept asking me to, to 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 come down and meet with Hal Prince. Well, I'd seen the the play version of of um, of uh, on the twentieth century, and I remember I saw it in Chicago, and it was just this one set of uh, and a very static feeling play. I knew the movie was was wonderful, but uh, I, I was not at all impressed with, the, with the, the stage play. And they had sent me three numbers and two of the numbers I didn't particularly care for. And the third number was kind of a character number that, that I thought was clever and fun. But I, I I really wasn't that keen on it. And they kept, Calling me, and I was in the middle of rehearsal of this the Red Bluegrass Western Flyer show up in East Haddam. And so I kept avoiding their calls, trying to get. And then they finally said, um, Ruth Mitchell is on her way to meet with you. And I, and, I, and I called back and said, Tell her not to come. I'll meet with Hal. So I came down to, uh, to, to New York. I went in and talked to, uh, to, talk to, to Hal. And i had auditioned for him several times and been turned down for this and turned down for that and almost gotten this and almost gotten that. So uh, he knew my work, and I knew, I knew how he thought about me. He didn't think I had been much much sense of humor either. But, <laughs>
1: you should be giving that impression to people. I know. I, <laughs> I, I, saying, I don't know why. But. I guess it's,
2: maybe it's true. But anyway, I didn't let it stop me. Uh, he he started talking about the play and then he could tell that I had some reservations he said come with me he took me into his office and he pulled the sheet off of this big set piece that means uh, um, the a model, model of the set yeah and he started showing me all these different things the train moving here and this and all that and I, and I looked at it I said I understand I understand how they're going to do this thing and I know who the star is was the set that's what I figured and uh I, but I could see that it would it was going to work with how you know Hal had this he had he had this vision for it and so I said listen Hal I will I, do it if if just I I had two reservations and I can't remember what they were but I think I know one of them was that it was a it had to be a love story that was not facetious. I mean, there was had to be a real um, uh, element of in the in the love story, and that uh, and I can't remember the other part. Anyway, I walked into the, the first day of rehearsal and Hal came up to me and said, "John, I know you don't like this particular number, so don't worry about it. At all we cut it, and it was the one that I liked. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> it's." very famously known that Madeline Kahn, your co-star, did not stay with the show very long and I'm wondering how just when you've gotten the show together you, you're playing opposite someone, suddenly there's someone else there, Judy Kay coming in. How, how did that affect you at the time?
2: I, I, I was very disappointed because Madeline was wonderful and I knew she was. And I knew that the that the problems that they had were problems that you just have with with, uh, with talents like Madeline. She was a very sensitive and shy kind of person, and uh, I didn't think that they had handled her right. Um, and she got into an altercation with Cy Coleman, and uh, and they they didn't they didn't they didn't treat her like the star that she. Deserve to be treated like that's what I think, and that's this has nothing to do with Judy because Judy, uh, I mean Judy was there, and I can remember when the first time that, that uh, Madeline didn't show up for a rehearsal and Judy went through it and she Madeline asked me she says, how 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 was it today? I said well, she she knows all all the lines she knows them. And so she that happened again. And and uh she asked me again and I said, She knows the blocking and the lines and the dances. And uh so the last time was that, that she missed she missed the as I recall, she missed the gypsy run through. And she came to me and, and you know, after and apologized to me and so on and and uh she said Studio Kid okay? I said, Don't miss again. Mm-hmm because Judy was, was right there and she had an extraordinary voice and could dance and sing and do the whole thing. It made her into a star herself. But uh, I, I, never, I never recovered quite from the, the loss of Madeline. I mean, Judy was wonderful, but Madeline, oh, Madeline had uh, the, mad, the magic of Madeline Kahn. And it's it, it's just too bad that uh, that more people didn't get a chance to see it. Well,
1: that was nineteen seventy eight through the eighties and the nineties. You did a number of other Broadway shows, and you of course, were doing television work and film work at that time as well. Mm-hmm. Then a little show that became a big hit show called Urinetown mm-hmm. in uh, two thousand and one. I guess that so yeah. was that you mm-hmm. went in and and, uh, and starred in that yeah. again. What what led up to that, and what what did you think <laughs> about going into that show?
2: Well, my manager Jeff Burr sent me a script, and he said, "I'm not telling you anything about this script." He said, "Just read it." Mm-hmm. And I, I was—we were living in a log cabin, and I was in the, on the uh, second floor, and my wife's down, and she heard me, and I was, I was literally cursing. I was angry. I said, "God damn it!" These, these are the most ridiculous lyrics I've ever heard. They're so mundane, they're 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 trivial, they're June Moon kind but of, it's and she said, well, what 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 are you talking about? And I said, Well listen to this. I said this is supposed to be my big number that they think is such a deal you know, a little bunny in the meadow and I read I read this thing and went through this lyric just reading it to her and, and I looked up and she was laughing. I said, Do you think that's funny? She says it's hilarious. <laughs> I, said, well, I, I said, I said, well, I, I, and I called up Jeff and I said I have to talk to the director. So I called the director, and um, John. Uh, John, Rand- John Rando. John uh, Rando and. Uh, and I, I told him that you know I, I didn't maybe I didn't know. You know I didn't, I didn't know this, and I didn't know that, and what about this, and so did Well, within 20 minutes, it was a hoot and holler kind of conversation. I was hooting and hollering and laughing and screaming, and, and uh, I, I didn't realize that it was so deliberately <laughs> off the wall. <laughs> uh, and I was trying to read it as if it were a regular musical. So I said, okay, all right, I'll 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 do it. So, But when I got to New York, it was very interesting. They'd been in rehearsal for a couple of days. And I walked in, and I noticed the people in the company reacted very strangely to me. They were almost backing away from me, looking at me as if I didn't, wasn't supposed to be there. And that's what they were thinking. I didn't find out. They, they were all didn't, couldn't believe that I had decided to do this show but i knew it was a good show once i saw once i saw what it what it where it was going and what it was doing and and the, the, the and i this may sound like i think i'm so smart but the truth is it never occurred to me that it wasn't going to be a hit i mean i didn't know that it would take off but i knew that it was with that company uh every, And the concept that they have, every move that they made, you know, and I've been in some big musicals, as we've talked about, every move that they made was the right move. It didn't, it didn't, they didn't make any of the wrong moves that quite often happen in big musicals that mean you're leaving half a set in New York. Uh, or the, you 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 get in a in a in a cul-de-sac of an idea and you have to restage the whole thing or or ghost it, it everything just kept going in the right way and nobody nobody started taking it so seriously that it couldn't have its own humor the kind of humor that it was designed to be it 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 had a wonderful feeling of this is what we are, and if you don't understand it, that's okay but uh if you think about it, you will understand it or and, and it the audience just just fell in love with it mm-hmm. the unfortunate thing about that thing which i never Never occurred to me that the name would be such a drawback, because finally, after we've been running for two years, and I would run into people, New Yorkers, who uh, who had were turned off by the name and hadn't come to see the show. Mm-hmm. I said, and I finally developed a line which was, "It well, I tell you what." Um, don't come yourself, but send your kids. They'll <laughs>
1: love it. They'll understand it. And apparently, a lot of people did, and the show might still be running if the theater itself hadn't been torn down.
2: Well, I think I think it. I think it should still be running. It's it it, it was a it was it deserved a long run, and it's being done around the country. I can't tell you how many companies, uh, people. When I was doing one hundred and ten, a lot of the young people came to see that show, and a lot of them had been doing. You're in town in in high schools and colleges.
1: Well, John, the hour together has just flown past. We started talking about Cymbeline. We've kind of come full circle. I want to just remind our listeners that you are currently starring as the King of Britain, Cymbeline, the title character, at Lincoln (laughs) Center Theater. and encourage them to come see you and to thank you, John Cullen, for being with us today on Downstage Center.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I I hope I haven't bored anybody. Not at all. Very interesting. Thank you.
0: Not at all, John. Thank you. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And
1: for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.